Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Well, welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. My name is Greg McDonough. I'm the CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors and the chapter president of the Entrepreneurs Organization of Washington, DC. Today's guest has been in the financial services industry since 2001. She founded Curo Private Wealth in 2014, a private wealth management firm. In 2007, she earned her chartered retirement planning counselor designation, and in 2011, the prestigious certified financial planner certification. She's a frequent guest on the federal news radio, ABC7, News Channel 8, NTN24, and Telemundo, Washington, and now this podcast. Washingtonian Magazine has named her top money advisor, and Investment News has, made, has listed her on our national list of 40 under 40. Today's guest is Anne McCabe. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Greg. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. Well, we focus on leadership on this podcast, and I'd love to jump right into my favorite question. Any misconceptions that you see in leadership? Oh, yeah, there are a lot of them. Um, I think one of the ones that I hear frequently, whether it's when you own your own business or, or you're just a leader in general, is that if you're running the show, you get to work less than everyone else, right? Um, you get to have the, the flexibility in your schedule. And for those of us who run businesses and are leaders, we know that that's a massive misconception because even if we're not in the office per se all day long, you know, we, we don't ever turn it off. So I think that's, that's something that for anyone who's considering starting a business or, you know, being a leader have to be pretty comfortable with the fact that you can never, ever turn it off. That's, (laughs) it's so very true. Um, Across your experience, how have you handled the not being able to turn off? You know, you've got um, a lot of responsibility in your life. You've got family, you've got your job, you've got your hobbies, you've got all these things. How do you stop from letting your entrepreneurial journey and your work just take over everything? It's a great question. I think the key to that is you have to be incredibly passionate about what it is that you're doing to the point that it doesn't bother you anymore, that you can't turn it off. And so whether that means, I don't necessarily think that means that you're always working in the business, but I do think that even in your spare time, when you are working out or you are on a hike or doing something that you enjoy doing that you enable yourself and allow yourself to really creatively think about your business and what it is that you're doing. So I think it's important that we're, we not work all the time in the business, but I also think that for me, the times when I'm out of the office doing something that's not necessarily directly related to my business, those are the times when I have the best ideas and the most creative ideas that I can come back and implement in my business. But I think the key is you have to be passionate and it has to bring you joy. If you're doing something that does not bring you joy and you're not passionate about, and you can't turn it off, that seems like it would be a recipe for a disaster. So I feel very fortunate that I landed into 
my industry and my career literally right out of college, but I absolutely love what I do. And so it doesn't bother me at all that I can't ever turn it off because I, I quite enjoy thinking about it and, um, you know, trying to figure out how we can do this a little bit better every day. You know, tricks for me on that same topic have been learning how to say no, right? Saying no to things that, to your point, don't bring you joy or you're not passionate about. Um, and then also similar to your response, I find my best thinking happens either during or just after exercise. So there's yeah. something there that just gets the body and your mind going. And I don't call that work. I call that just living. Um, right. Interesting. So let's take a different direction. Um, talk to me about you know, your career path and you, know, you came right out of college, you ended up do, in the financial services industry. You were at a very big named firm, had a nice W-2 paycheck. I'm assuming it was nice, you know, but it was consistent, you know, every two weeks, whatever it was coming in. And at some point in time, you got the courage to go out on your own. Talk to the audience about that mindset or the having maybe not have figured out what your end game plan is going to be, but just making the decision to make a change. Sure. So it was a little bit different for me. I've actually in my post-college career never had a consistent paycheck. So yes, I was W-2 because I was technically an employee with some large Wall Street firms, but I've always been in a position where it was eat what you kill kind of thing. And I remember when I was recruited right out of college to become a financial advisor, I was talking to my mom. So my mom was in government her entire career. My dad has been a serial entrepreneur. So I remember having a conversation with my mom and I was explaining kind of what I was pitched about this career, right? Where I can, I can, there's no ceiling on what I can earn and I can help all these people. And yes, I'm going to be working 60 hours per week and no, I don't have a salary and you know, all the things. And I remember her saying like, is this really why you went to college? This sounds horrible. I mean, what, what part of this is attractive to you? And then I talked to my dad who again is, is a serial entrepreneur and he's like, Oh, this is fantastic. You know, you've got tons of potential. You're going to be great with people. You're great with numbers. You love the markets and the economy. Um, you know, go work for these wall street firms for a few years, kind of learn the ropes and get trained. And then you can start your own business. And so it was an interesting, <laughs> it was an interesting convert two different conversations to have with, with my parents, but Back to your question, I think the impetus for me starting my firm and going independent when I did, which was originally in 2010, was this, this was post-financial crisis. I was with a large Wall Street firm that was in a pretty bad situation financially. On top of that, they had a couple of other scandals going on. And so when you leave one of these big law, these big Wall Street firms, what happens is you're clients get assigned to all the 30 or 40 advisors who are left in the office and they're on the phones right away, Jerry Maguire style, if you've seen that movie, um, they're on the phones right away trying to convince people to stay with them. And so at the time I had a business partner and we looked at that situation as an opportunity, right? Because we're leaving a firm that was in a position of weakness. And we knew that as all these advisors were calling our clients, trying to convince them to stay, 
we had a much better story in going independent and not having conflicts of interest anymore and making sure we could give recommendations to our clients that we knew were in their best interest as opposed to perhaps what a company was telling us to say or do or believe. And so we took that crisis and that challenge and flipped it on its head and turned it into an opportunity and said, you know what? Everybody else is terrified still, right? Remember, I mean, 2009 was the bottom of the market. This was the first quarter of 2010 when we launched. It was still, there was still massive fear in the markets and in the economy. But, you know, we said, hey, this is actually a perfect time for us to do something like this. So I think it's, you know, it's the belief in yourself. It's maybe looking at things a little bit differently than consensus. So when everyone is looking at something as a challenge, where is that opportunity? Where is the silver lining? Where is the, the, the positive outcome that could come as a result of this pretty courageous, terrifying decision? And the other thing I would say is anytime I've made these huge decisions in my life, one of the most important questions I ask myself is what is the worst that can happen? So we can talk this talk about this more in a, in a bit, but I sold my practice, my business last year. And I asked myself the same question. What is the absolute worst case scenario that can happen if this goes to crap? Right. And am I at peace with that worst case scenario? And I think in, in order for us to take these large leaps and these large risks in our life, we have to be comfortable with what that worst case scenario is, knowing that the probability of the worst case scenario occurring is quite low always, right? But it can happen. And so are you at peace with the worst case scenario? In my case, when we left the large Wall Street firm, worst case scenario was you're going to go bankrupt and you know, you're going to have to go get a job. And I'm like, all right, if that's the worst case scenario, like I'm still going to be alive. I believe in myself. I can go get a job. And so that was really, you know, what led me to, to be okay making the decision and thank God I didn't go bankrupt and I didn't have to go get a job. So it all worked out. (laughs) That's a a very powerful question. And and it's a conversation I have with my clients around decision-making in business. You know, most of the time, if not all the time, it's not binary, right? It's not a one or a zero. And it's important, at least how I advise clients of, of let's make a decision and move forward. Because to your point, even if you do have the worst case scenario and it happens, there's things that you could do to get out of it, right? You buy a house that you don't, in a location you don't need to live in anymore, you still can sell it. You might not sell it for a profit and you might have to sell it for a loss, but at least you can sell it. So it's again, that question really makes you think, okay, let's frame out and scenario the worst case. And then maybe let's put some hedges in for that worst case or understand what the game plan is. And that then gives you more confidence to make that decision. So let's go back to your day one, right? You leave your Wall Street firm Monday morning, whatever day you started, you walk into the office or into your kitchen to start your new business. Talk to us about that first day and those feelings and, you know, what emotions you were having. Yeah, so... Whenever you leave a big Wall Street firm, you always resign on a Friday afternoon. It's just what you do because you don't give a two-week notice. You can't give a two-week notice. In fact, if they find out that you are planning to leave, they will kick you out 
the second they discover no packing up your office, no, no, nothing. They'll put all your stuff in a box and leave it on the curb for you. So we resigned on a Friday afternoon and um, you have to wait for your license to transfer over to the, to the new back office, to the new company that's going to be clearing your transactions and custodying your client's assets. And so for a period of about two hours, you're just in limbo and you're mind is going everywhere and you're questioning, at least I was questioning myself and questioning the decision. Like, was this really the right call? I literally, you know, we had X amount of dollars under management um, at 3.59 PM and by four o'clock we were literally to zero. Um, so it's, it's, it was scary. It was terrifying. At the same time, your adrenaline is rushing. And once our license transferred over and we got the, the go to be able to legally contact our clients again, you're just, you're back on the phones, you're telling your story and there's so much energy and, and excitement that comes along with that. And as you start having these positive conversations, these conversations with clients that are like, well, absolutely. We're going to come with you all. We work with you. We don't work with the company, right? We have the relationship. We trust you as you build that sort of positive momentum and have these really supportive, great conversations with folks that you hope are going to come with you, but you don't know, and they certainly don't have to, that positive momentum drives you to the next conversation and the next conversation. So what the next few days looked like was, was pretty chaotic, right? Um, we worked into the evening that Friday, we worked all day Saturday, we worked all day Sunday, and we just had to keep going through our list of clients to call processing paperwork. Um, so it was, it was definitely chaotic, exciting, but again, as we we're getting more and more positive feedback and support. It just made us feel even more confident that we had made the right decision. So there are entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, either con contemplating, jumping or making a move or doing something new. What advice would you give after going through that experience and, and establishing your own firm what advice would you give that person that's contemplating a new journey in their life? I think the biggest piece of advice I can give someone is if you wait until you have it all figured out, you'll never do it because there you'll just never have everything figured out beforehand. Right. I mean, when you launch a business, if you're going to get a bank loan, for example, you have to create this beautiful business plan with all these metrics and all these numbers. And you know, and I know, and the bank knows that we're literally pulling those numbers out of our rear end, right? I mean, a business plan is an important thing to have, but if you look back on all the business plans that you've written and how things actually went down in your business, I would bet that the majority of the time what actually happens is not what you wrote in your business plan. And I look back on my life and some of the most amazing opportunities that have been presented to me in my life have not been on my list of goals for that year. They have not been on my business plan. They weren't even necessarily on my radar screen, like me selling my business last year, nowhere near on my radar screen, but an amazing opportunity that presented it, it, itself to me because I was open and, and ready and, um, so that would be number one is don't wait until you have it all figured out to, to launch. The other thing is one of the most amazing things about our current economy with the whole side hustle deal is that you can, you can start your business while staying at your secure 
job with your W-2 salary and you can test the waters, right? So it doesn't have to be this all or nothing decision where you leave your stable, secure job with a paycheck that comes into your bank every two weeks and blow through your savings and make a, a poor financial decision for yourself and your family. You can start your business on the side, do it part-time. You're going to have to work long hours. And that's just something that you have to do sometimes if you're really committed to something like this. But that's something that didn't really exist a couple decades ago, right? We, we didn't really have a side hustle economy where it was easy enough to start a, a second business. So putting my financial planner hat on for a moment um, and being a little bit more conservative for a moment, you don't have to leave everything and launch into something. You can test the waters, you can try it out. You don't have to invest typically a ton of capital to do that and see how it goes. But eventually you'll get to a point where you know whether or not this thing has legs. And once you get there, it is gonna take some some courage to rip the bandaid off, you know, leave the secure job and, and make this your full-time, you know, your full-time career moving forward. Awesome. Um so let's take that to the other end. You mentioned just now that you sold your business. Walk us through that emotion. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was very emotional. Um, so it's funny because when the opportunity was presented, it's was presented to me initially, I said, no, thank you. I mean, I'm um, nowhere near ready to retire I love what I do. I'm very passionate about it. I see so much potential in the next few decades and I want to be in it and I want to make an impact. And so I said, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not at a place where I want to sell my, my business. It's not on my radar screen, but um, I got a little bit of pushback on that answer and I allowed myself to be open to continuing conversations. And what I said to myself was as long as it still feels good, like in my gut and in my intuition, it feels good. I am going to continue the conversation and take the next step until it either a doesn't feel good or B I've made a final decision. Right. And so it was, it was a multi-month long process where we were having conversations and talking about the details and talking about what it could look like. And finally, when an offer was made, I was like, Oh crap, I, now I actually need to make a decision, right? I can't just keep talking about it. And so it was, it was incredibly emotional. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, analyzing it. I spent a lot of time thinking about the numbers aspect, but also my quality of life and what my life purpose is and what I think my life purpose is. And finally, I got to a place where it just felt like this was absolutely what I was supposed to do. But leading up to the transaction closing, in fact, about two weeks prior to closing, I woke up and basically had a panic attack and um, asked myself if I really was going to go through with this and was I making the right decision? And, you know, I, I remember talking to a good friend and being like, I wonder if I can like bail at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, she was like, no, you can't do that. You're, you're way too down the way too down the line. And I wouldn't have done that anyway. But my point is that it, it's a very emotional decision. I mean, I have two actual children and my business is like my third child. And so it was, it was definitely an emotional experience, but it kind of goes back to what I mentioned about leaving the large wall street firm. I asked myself the same question. I mapped out what is the worst case scenario look like? And I was at peace with that. And so once I signed, you know, signed all the documents and everything was closed, I was like, all right, 
now it's time to make this work, right? The best that I possibly can. Um, and I'm about eight months into it. I'm still running the practice. I still work with our clients, which I love doing. And uh, so my life hasn't changed all that much. What is very nice is I don't have to deal with the administrative aspect of the business anymore. I don't have to run payroll. I don't have to worry about health benefits, which as a business owner, you know, is, is the least fun aspect of what we do. So again, it's, it's all worked out, but it's important to be at peace with things, maybe not working out the way that, that you, you know, hope and wish that they will. I've been fortunate enough to have both ends of that story, right? The, the formation of a business, a couple of businesses and a very small exit of one of my businesses. And I found that the emotion is the same, right? It's the, a, that same emotion of starting your business of, am I really doing the right thing here? Is very similar to, should I sell this business or walk away? Um, and I find that interesting that it's that same fear-based motivation and you eventually have to just get up the courage and go for it and then kind of manage the process after the fact. Um, so switching gears a little bit, and I'd love to hear, put you on your soapbox. Uh, talk to us about your ideal client. Who do you like to work with? Um, kind of sort of your little, your sales pitch. My sales pitch. Yeah. Cause I'm so well, you salesy. Really you know, sell, you know me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can who I do you just love say working? One... Talk to us about who do you yeah. love working with? Absolutely. No, I appreciate that question. I just want to say one more thing back to, to making these, these sorts of decisions. I think one of the things in society that we've gotten away from as life is busy and as we're constantly bombarded with media and social media and, you know, this 24 seven, um, news outlet is, I think we've gotten away from like sitting quietly with ourselves and really listening to what it is that, that, our bodies and our intuition is telling us. And so that's another piece of advice that I would give to people um, is just, just make sure that you're taking some time to, to be quiet, whether that is meditating, if you're into that. And if you're not just sitting without your phone for five minutes and just kind of checking in with yourself to see how you're feeling about your life, your career, your business, you know, what you should do, the next steps or the decisions that you should make. So just wanted to, to throw that out there as well. Um, but thank you for the question about who we love working with. There are two groups of people that we work really well with in our practice. The first group of people are um, people, families, couples who are preparing for retirement. So they are, let's say somewhere between five to 10 years away from making work optional, which is what we like calling retirement because we like to get clients to a position where they can make the choice if they'd like to continue working or not, but not are not in a financial position where they have to keep working. So we call that a work optional lifestyle. And there are lots of questions that they have. Are they on track for retirement? How much do they have to have saved? When should they take social security? Um, we're talking a lot recently about Roth conversions. Does that make sense? When does it make sense? Um, so lots of questions along the retirement planning front. And a big piece of news that I give to people when they're planning for retirement is that many of us who are in the accumulation phase where we are working and we're saving to our various accounts think that this is the complicated phase of life. 
And the fact of the matter is once you get into distribution phase, which is when you're no longer working or you're working less and making less money and you have all these different accounts and you have to figure out how do I recreate a paycheck for myself in retirement? That's, that's really the challenging part. And that's where we really, we love putting that puzzle together for clients and figuring out how to um, best create that paycheck for them. So that's one group of people. And then the other group of people that we really enjoy working with are women who are going through some sort of life transition. So uh, I would say most commonly they are a a female who has recently gone through a divorce or unfortunately recently lost their spouse. And in a lot of cases, their husband was the one who had the relationship with the advisor, was more kind of into the investments and Oftentimes they're at a place where they would like to make a change in that relationship because they just don't feel a connection with the advisor um, at that point. And so we work really well with, with these women in transition. I happen to be a woman who's gone through, you know, some life transitions myself and losing one of my sisters and going through a divorce myself. And so I love bringing in the emotional and the, the compassion to the process while also helping these women make some very important, vital decisions for themselves, their families, and their financial futures. I'm gonna ask you a question just a little bit deeper into that because you struck a chord with me. You know, in our household, I'm the finance guy and that's my background. And my wife works and she's amazing at what she does. But at times I suspect she feels hey, I don't fully understand all the complexities of all the things we're going on. And we're not lining up for a transition or a change in our life because we're very happy. But what advice would you give someone like her who doesn't want the fire hose, but wants to understand a little bit more of what's going on with her financial? And she's, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Very good question. So I would recommend that when you meet with your financial advisor, I don't know how many times a year you, you meet with her, but when you meet with your advisor, I would recommend that your wife joins that meeting at least once a year so that she can hear the update, hear what's going on, hear what you have, that kind of thing. The second piece of advice I would give is, and I know you're very organized, is probably along the lines of, let's just say the annual review, making sure that she knows where in your files, whether it's electronically or in paper, she can find a list of everything that you all have going on. So for our clients in our annual review, we update their net worth statement, which is what I call their financial report card. It's nice because on one page, they can see here are all of our accounts, here are our assets, our liabilities. The only thing that's not listed on that are life insurance policies, but life insurance policies don't typically they're not fluctuating as much as your investable assets are. So what I would suggest is at least once per year, you update your net worth statement so she can see where, where we have all of our assets, what banks you know are our cash accounts with, what investment institutions do we have um, money in. And then you also have one sheet of paper with all of your insurance policies on them. And just once a year, I'm not asking for more than that, but once a year, she's involved in that process so she knows what's going on. I think that's key because it's, it's common with our clients too, where we'll have one of the couple sort of that we'll call or that we'll communicate with that's more involved in the relationship. 
but I almost require that at least once a year, I see both, both people just to make sure if God forbid something were to happen, that that surviving spouse, whether it is the wife or the husband, you know, is not completely lost with, with what's going on. That's right. That's right. One more thing that I would just mention is I think that also when you're thinking about your relationship with your advisor. So one of the things that I do when I'm sitting down with, with prospective clients is whoever was the leader with scheduling the meeting, whoever's been the most vocal about where they are and you know why they're looking to make a switch with the advisor, I will ask the other person in the couple to actually start telling me where they are, why there's, why we're sitting down for this meeting to make sure that they have a chance to communicate. Because I know that the client that's more vocal, more involved has already been communicating with me more. I'm not going to have a problem hearing from that person, whether it is the husband or wife, I want to hear from the other half of the couple, right? What is it that you think is going on? Why do you think you all are here? You know, what keeps you up at night? I, I hear from the more vocal person all the time. Um, but that, that's another thing is just to make sure if you're thinking about your relationship, make sure that you are vocal and that you are being included in these conversations. Cause again, a lot of times when we will bring on a new female client after something happens with their, um, their husband or their partner, it's because they haven't felt heard in that relationship. It's because they haven't been included. And a lot of times in my industry, I think advisors are guilty of assuming that that in this case, the woman doesn't want to be involved and that may or may not be the case, but make sure that you are vocalizing, you know, your concerns and your questions and don't be afraid to ask questions too. I think another thing we do in our industry is we love using jargon. We love making people feel confused and intimidated so that they don't ask the questions. If you don't understand, you know, something that your advisor is saying or what's going on, please ask the questions. You have 100% right to do so. And you need to know what your money is doing, where it's allocated and why. That's very well said. Very well said. So switching back to entrepreneurship, let's say you're looking back to the day you graduated college. What advice would Ann McCabe today give Ann McCabe graduating from college? I think looking back, um, because I was in such a male dominated and I still am in such a male dominated industry. One of the things that I look back on, and I am a person who does not regret a single thing in my life, because I absolutely think that everything that we go through in life is to teach us something. It's part of our journey. So I, I don't look back on any of my life experiences and regret However, I look back on my first few years in the industry and there was this deep feeling of needing to fit in to what was and what still is a very male dominated industry. So just to give you some silly examples, I wore suits pretty much every day because that's what I thought, you know, I was supposed to do. Um, I had a manager early in my career tell me that I needed to learn golf because golf was where I was going to make like I had to be good at golf to be successful in this industry. Um, things like that, that I wish looking back, I would have embraced who I am, which is, you know, 
a woman, first of all, uh, a feminine woman, um, a young woman, because I was right out of college when I started. And I wish that I would have embraced the unique aspects that I bring to the table way earlier. Now I'm having been doing this for 16 years, I'm very comfortable with what I bring to the table and how I'm different than the majority of the people in my industry. You know, I always joke that when you go to a financial advisor conference, financial advisor conferences and the Super Bowl are the only places where the men's line in the bathroom is longer than the woman's. <laughs> Those are pretty much the only two places. So um, that's something I wish I would have done earlier because I now that I embrace who I am and, and the unique aspects that I bring to the table, I find way more joy in what I do. And I wish that I would have done that a little bit earlier. So just being true to who you are and you know, recognizing how you're different and unique, but how that's a beautiful thing. And that's, that's not a problem. That's, that's a blessing to the world and, you know, to your industry. Amazing. So, and someone in our audience is curious to find you, what's the best form, which social media platform? Are you, talk to us about how, how do we find you? Sure. I'm on the three big ones. I'm on LinkedIn, um, Twitter, Facebook. We have a Kiro Private Wealth Facebook page. Um, but if you want to connect with me directly, LinkedIn would be the place to do that. And it's Anne McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E. And if you just look Anne McCabe, Kiro Private Wealth, I will pop up. And I'll share our links with you so you can put them in the show notes. Sounds great. Great. Well, it's been awesome having you today. And you've uh, you touched on a lot of chords for me. Um, which I'll have to do some some quiet time to uh, reflect on, but thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Greg. It was a pleasure, super fun. I could talk about this stuff all day long with you. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do another podcast. All right. All right, well, thank you again. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought, Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.